When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, John Wertheim here. This is this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. Busy week in tennis. As we record this, Novak Djokovic has just lost to Dan Evans. We have Naomi Osaka getting into the non-fungible token game. The French Open has been moved back a week. It looks like Indian Wells will happen in mid-October. Serena Williams has a development deal on Amazon. A lot going on in the sport. Uh, what better time to visit with the ATP chairman, Andrea Godenzi? Uh, he was once a top... 20 player fans of a certain age i.e mine will recall him as a player but he then made a very smooth transition to business and management he worked for a tech startup he was in the music business he worked in financial services and maybe 18 months ago or so he became the chairman of the atp that obviously coincided with uh first with fires and that was just a warm-up act then with covid so his strategic plan which uh, I would encourage you all to look at it if you're interested. It's very detailed. It's available online. Uh, this is a guy with a real vision who has sort of the, the insider take of being a former player, but also real business experience and education and pedigree. Fascinating figure. Um, it will be interesting to see once he is given full runway, as they say in NBA speak, what he can do. But uh, this is a, a good wide-ranging conversation. We talk a bit about the proposed merger with women's tennis. Um, not sure I... Agree with all of his analogies, but I think he raises a lot of good points. Uh, we talk about how the ATP can become a bigger player in the media space. We use words like modernization. Um, interesting take and a good sort of global perspective. A guy who, again, has been, you know, guys played into week two of majors. This is someone who knows the sport inside and out as a player, but also has some real, real world application and experience. So uh, good conversation. This is Andrea Godenzi. I figured we we would start with you. You are a uh, you're you're a former top twenty player, and you are now atop the org chart at the ATP. We've seen players make uh, transitions to life after tennis, but this uh, this is pretty extreme. How how did you go from uh, a guy who was playing uh, top twenty tennis to running your own company and now atop the ATP? How did you how did you manage that? Well, I think. Being here at the helm of ATP is a little bit accidental, I have to say. <laughs> to be honest, it wasn't it wasn't a plan. I I had a strong desire to to work in tech, media, and businesses. That that's how I prepared myself while I was playing with a law degree and then an MBA, Master of Business Administration. So, and I kind of went out and did a lot of the things that I, you know, I set my goals to uh, mainly work in a large organization first, learn a lot, and learn of the mistakes of what the large organization do, and then create your own startups to actually to compete against them <laughs> and successfully do so in, in different industry. It's gaming, entertainment, financial services, music. And 
after I think 15 years away from tennis, I and my kids, I have three boys now, 14, 12 and 10. My wife was also a tennis player. She's a tennis fanatic. So they, they've been playing tennis since they're two years old watching a lot of tennis on TV. I thought I got together a little bit closer to tennis through a non-executive board position in ATP Media uh, for four or five years, but was quite light, four or five meetings a year, no, not more than 10, 15 days a year. But it gave me the possibility to a little bit have an oversight on what was going on on the business side and on the politics side, on the governing body. And, it, and I always kind of felt there is so much opportunity here if we do things differently. That was with everything I've seen outside of tennis, with the smart people I've had the pleasure to work with in you know Silicon Valley. Because the last in the last my business, we were selling basically data to Apple Music, Google, Amazon Music, Spotify, and all of those companies, and and somehow they all. You meet a lot of people along the way who love tennis. They knew about my past and they were like, oh, why doesn't tennis do this and do that? And we had all these brainstorming sessions. So I kind of formed the idea of what we, what the sport should be doing based on very clear business and market rules that where the market was heading in terms of consumer need and demand. So and, uh, yeah, it, it it strikes me. T- tennis is not a startup. It's it's quite the opposite. You have these in, entrenched interests, and you have some resistance to to change. What are what are you selling? First of all, I mean, you you have the the, the sport that's probably the, you know the fourth most popular sport in the world. That is not uh, that is not proportional to its share of of sports revenues. What what are you selling when you're talking to networks and sponsors? What what is the pitch? Well, I, I think the pitch at the moment is internal because exactly as you said, I, I do strongly believe we are under monetizing. I do strongly believe there is a massive opportunity in the future for tennis due to volumes. I mean, we are a sport with a lot of matches and, and that's perfect for digital and OTT. It, it was kind of difficult to sell tennis to network in the 90s in a linear programming, right? You don't know how long a match lasts. You don't know when it starts. You don't know when it finishes. You don't even know who's playing until the day before. <laughs> That's not very good for programming. And, and we have a very strong women product, which is quite unique. Nobody else has. And, and we're global. And, and that's exactly what the big media tech company want nowadays. Global property, lots of volumes, men and women. So when we're talking, even, you know, I've got a lot of people in Apple or Amazon. By the way, Amazon has started getting into the, into the space. They're like, it's just perfect. But can we can't, it's very, we struggle actually buying your rights. That, that's the underlining right. uh, motive that I hear from these guys. So, you know, accidentally they asked me, hey, you know, there is a new, uh, a new chairman uh, coming up. There is, you know, headhunter, blah, blah, blah. Do you want to be on the list? And it was quite late, actually. I think I did my interview in New York 2019. Mm-hmm. I came in as a late runner, uh, prepared the presentation in three days, five slides, but the principles are exactly the same of what you all guys have seen. Right. Yeah, and, and, and there I am starting in Australia with the bushfires and then a 
global pandemic in March. Right. Yeah, I, I was gonna. I was gonna say, if you're trying to uh, activate a plan, Mother Nature has not been your uh, your best doubles partner. But I mean, you you brought up the women, so why don't we why don't we talk about that? I think it was just about a year ago that Roger Federer sends out this tweet that he's he's envisioning a merger, and Rafa weighs in. And everyone gets excited, and since then, uh, nothing. Um, you, you mentioned women, so why don't we start there? I mean, sort of, it's, it's, it's fairly a simple yes or no question. Do you, uh, do, do you support a merger with men and women? Yeah, I, I support, look, we, we talk to the same fans. We belong to the same storytelling, January till the end of the year. It's a unique selling point for our sports. Definitely, we should package our product together, and and to, I'm, I'm actually proud to have inspired Roger and Ruffin to that because they saw our presentation in January and, and they kind of bought into it, and which I think is very positive. That obviously, COVID came into a disruption and, and that's where most of our focus and energy and time has been dedicated in the last 15 months. But we didn't stop moving forward. And as a matter of fact, uh, very few people know that, but we're working with the WTA. We in merging our marketing and social media department, potentially content creation, and do even more. We started with Tennis United last year, and and I was just here two days, also planning with our business and marketing team, and continue to do so. We need to collect more content. We need the fans love to see men and women player together. And, uh, and that's what we're going to continue doing. What, what, what does that look like? And it, I mean, it, it's sort of this threshold question, which ultimately is nickels in the, in the big financial picture. But it's the first question everybody asks is, do you support equal prize money? So what, what, what does a merge tour look like to you? And do you support paying the players the same wages? There's two, there's two facets. One is merging the operation, right? I think commercially merging the rights is and the marketing and the communication is 100% the right thing to do. Then do you actually merge the governing bodies, the entities that, you know, with different boards, with different representation? That's a little bit more complex, but yeah, in principle, why not? It would make sense. And by the way, most of our, the biggest combined event, the Master 1000 are combined and they have equal price money. It's the, the equal price money topic, as you know, it, it's a little bit more sensitive. It's I, I strongly believe that if we kind of go together, it's a little bit of a one plus one equals three. Everybody benefits. So we start of fighting even before that. Then you go into the argument in equal opportunity versus equal pay. What is right? Should an entertainer be paid like in Spotify model every time a user clicks play and there is no differentiation who gets paid, the, the, the consumer decides who gets paid more. That, that's the current digital model in music. So you leave the decision of the royalty distribution 100% to consumer based on viewership or, or listening in case of music. That's one model. The other right. model is, is the current one we have at the Grand Slam and the combined tournament. I'm, I'm fine with either way, honestly speaking. I just want to get together and, and grow the sport, grow the audience, and, yeah. and, and see our sport I have. You, you you don't think that has to be established. I mean, you, you can you know you, you you can say you're fine with either way, but you don't you don't think that has to be established before you, we can really dig deeper on more substantive issues. I think it's a discussion that also the the women would need to think about. To be honest, I I recall 
I've been playing until 2003, and which is, was right after the post Agassi Sampras era. And there was a quite a period where the women actually had a stronger product than men. Right. I, I recall in those days the women WTA rights being more valuable than the ATP. We had some issues at the time. So equal means equal, but it could go either way for both sides. You know, do you do you leave the market dictate uh, what is the product that has more demand or not? You know, there are pros and cons in that model, or you leave it entirely up to the consumer to decide who gets paid more. We have to be conscious that we are in the entertainment industry, right? There is no model of paying an actor or, or, or an artist or a machine that they're based, they're paid based on the demand from the market. That said, if you start selling the rights uh, completely, yeah, it makes it, it gets a little bit more difficult to split, right? So, <laughs> yeah, but but I mean, you know, well, we can we can move past this. But you're you're telling me that one of tennis's great virtues is that people are fans of both sports and their events that are held simultaneously. That seems to me, you know, that that seems to be fundamentally different than the the Spotify model, where you, you don't buy Spotify to hear all music. You hear Spotify. You know, buy Spotify very specifically. What you're describing with tennis is. You buy Spotify for Spotify, but well, let's let's keep um, let's keep going. I mean, I think uh, you you've been in the business world. Yes and no, because let's assume in a few years we're going to have a Netflix of sport, which is a little bit the Spotify model. Let's say you have all rights there, all sports, all games, right. everything, and and let's assume that company like Netflix today is spending about twenty billion a year in producing movies. That's say that company will spend a hundred billion in buying all sports right worldwide today the market is around 50 billion how do you divide the revenues among nfl soccer nba tennis and you could simply do it by viewership by what is the user watching okay i understand it's a little bit difficult when you buy a ticket for a match and you go on site and you watch both i mean that that's a 50 50 there's no other way around right. we're not going to trap users and say, hey, what did you watch today? <laughs> but, but in digital, you can actually track everything down to what the user clicked, what it watched, for how many minutes, when it switched, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that's a that's a Spotify well, model. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, I just, well, whatever. I mean, let, let's move on. But I, I feel like you, you could do that for players also, right? I mean, you, you could dig down on yeah. players, and and do do you pay Roger Federer more for winning a tournament than you do a qualifier? Because you have data to show, I mean, I think at some point you've got to present this as a package. But let, let's let's move on. I mean, I, I think one of tennis's fundamental issues, and, and tell me if you disagree. If if you sent in McKinsey to go study tennis, it's very doubtful they would come away and say, yes, this is the optimal business model. Um, what do we do structurally? I mean, we, we've talked a little bit about uh, a possible tour merger, but even something like the configuration of a board or the fact that the, the, the tours operate in one sphere and the majors in another? I mean, what, what, do we, what does tennis look like ideally if we, could, if we could start over? And what of that could we actually change today? Well, if you can start ideally with a blank sheet of paper, obviously, I think as you, you, made, you made the analogy, I mean, Kinsey coming in and said, what, what should we do? It's basically have a, a board you know, with an elected through a democratic process, similar to the ATP. We currently have a board, three players rep, three tournaments left, respectively elected by player council and, and the tournaments. 
and the player council is elected by the wider group of players, which represent their interest. They are empowered and they make decisions on behalf of the collective group. You could replicate that model, obviously, with a few tweaks, adding maybe independent directors, adding different type of things, but that could be on top of the entire tennis ecosystem, mm-hmm. Grand Slams, WTA, ATP, because honestly, it's, you know, you need, we belong to the same storytelling, we share the same calendar. It's very difficult at the moment, it's extremely fragmented. To a certain extent, we have different rules for different tournaments. Just even look at the tiebreak fifth set rule of the Grand Slam. All four of them have a different one. I, and I'm an ex-tennis player, chairman of the ATP. I, if you ask me now which one is the rule of the four, I probably can't spell it out. Uh, so the more confusion you create for the fans, the more fragmentation, uh, you know, it's just you lose, you lose their engagement. They, they don't care about the back-end issues. They just want mm-hmm. to enrich uh, the experience while connecting to tennis. How do you, and we need to streamline operations because we also duplicate a lot of costs. Eh? ATP only, we have 64 apps, 64 websites, you know, different digital properties. We don't have a central database. We don't know today who are our fans. Mm -hmm. We don't know what they do, what they like. We don't collect the data in a central database. So we can't even sell our fans to our sponsors. There's a lot of things that can be done by centralizing, and which is exactly what the American League do, by the way. And I, you know, they're probably the best in class Mm -hmm. uh, because they're centralized, because their governance is, is more lean. That's how they do business, and, and it's proven success. When you say that tennis is under-monetized, you know, I, I, the, the NBA would have an answer if you asked them, but that would be different from another league. Where does this monetization come from? Where, where do you see the, the growth areas, and whether it's sports gambling yeah. or whether it's media, where, where does this monetization, what, what needs to be tapped into? Yeah, yeah. Uh, First, first of all, I think I've highlighted this in January already. Tennis relies today too much on ticket revenue. If, if you look at the other sports, the majority of revenue today is media and, and data, right? It's, it's a no-brainer that, you know, with 7 billion people in the world, more almost 2.5 billion people have a smartphone with a credit card. <laughs> and we're, we're currently reaching about half a billion paid subscription in music and in entertainment generally, and it's gonna grow, grow and more. So we don't tap into that that much. Our media revenue in relation to overall revenues are way lower than other leagues, because they do better at selling their product, in my opinion. So that, in my opinion, is the area of growth. It will be very difficult to build bigger stadium. I mean, you can't really provide a beautiful experience just by growing a bigger stadium. Where you're gonna grow is you're gonna grow the, in, a, in a wider reach also in different continents, right? You know, Latin America, Africa, Asia, etc. We're We're quite strong in Europe now, doing not so well in North America, but you know, half our business is in Europe. We're talking about 300 million people. It's, it's a very small part of the global population. So I think there is a massive potential there in digital distribution of our content worldwide. Right now, how, how, do you, um, how do you assess the level of trust between the tournaments and the players, between management and labor? Look, I think, and it's something that is clearly outlined in my strategic plan, the original scene is the lack of transparency. Uh, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's like me and you, John, opening a business, and I say, John, let's open a pizzeria 
And at the end of the year, I said, John, we had a $100 profit. Here is your 50. And you say, Andrea, can you show me the accounts? And they go like, nah, John, don't worry. You're fine. Get, take your $50. You know, do you trust Andrea, John? Maybe a couple of years, but then maybe when things get a little bit rough, you know, it just doesn't work, in my opinion. If you have a partnership, I think if you want to build trust, you need to have full transparency first. And then you can have an educated discussion about what is the best price money formula, what is the best candle. Any other issue becomes secondary because both parties are in good faith trusting each other. At the moment, there is a lot of conspiracy theories flying around, a lot of people throwing numbers out of the blue, Nobody really knows what they're talking about. Lots of misinformation, et cetera, et cetera, which builds up into this, you know, negativity and and constant uh, internal discussion. So you you are the chair. If we'll uh, let let's keep the analogy. You you are the chairman of this pizzeria. Can can you uh, can you not compel one partner to share? Their disclosures with the other. I mean, is, is that not something that what's what's preventing what you're describing makes all the sense in the world? I, I think I wrote uh, I wrote last week. If if I have a prenuptial agreement, I'm signing with my wife, but she won't tell me her net worth. That's a real problem. That's a real impediment. As chairman, can you not compel full disclosure? John, sorry, I, I'll respond in a sec, but I, I love your analogy, which I, I made the same analogy to the board. It's like you're trying to discuss a divorce settlement where you think right. your partner is hiding a huge amount of money in Switzerland. You don't really know. Your lawyer is telling you that, but in reality, they ain't true. You're never going to find an agreement. But look, transparency requires a supermajority vote, which is required for most of the big decisions in the ATP. Supermajority is two and two. So two from the player's side and two from the tournament side. So I, myself, as chairman, cannot enforce it. I need two tournament votes. Uh, we had received the 2019 audited financial for the first time. That's what, you know, management and the board have received. It's never been done before. And I think we are in, in a good path to actually convince the tournament that this is the right solution. You know, we, we're not there yet. We haven't voted yet. The audit rule is also linked to the rest of the strategic plan, which is the price money formula, the calendar and the media aggregation. We're trying to pass it as a package because we believe it's a fair balance between the two parties. And look, uh, time will tell. We will know in a few months whether that goes through or not. Right. When you were a player, would, would you have joined the PTPA? Oh, it depends which year. It depends when, why, and where. I I do remember as a player being many times unhappy, unhappy about the system or unhappy about ATP, unhappy about the tournament, unhappy about many things because, you know, life on the tour is tough. You you deal with many little issues, transportation, courts booking, that, you know, all these hiccups, I think, cause a lot of negativity into the player's uh, mind. We, there was a time, I remember, where we sort of discussed that we felt Europe was underrepresented. You know, when I was playing America at five top ten world, you know, it was Sampras, Agassi, Courier, mm. Chang, Todd Martin, uh, Chairman being America, everything in Pontevedra. We felt like, you know, Europe was not on the map. So there was always this kind of, of uh, sentiment. But we never really argued against the overall economics. 
And we never really thought we wanted to take the ATP down or thinking about creating an alternative association and potentially new tour. That wasn't the case. We sort of liked the, you know, I personally, I always had an affection towards the ATP. It's, you know, when you get your first ATP point, a little bit is like your first kiss. You know, as, as, as a young tennis player, it's something that you'll never forget. So you have this affection toward the organization. So there are things that I wanted to improve. And today I think we still need to improve a lot of the things. And I acknowledge a lot of the feedback from the player is actually right. But I don't think, you know, in the best player interest that if I put a player hat, I don't think creating a separate association is in the best interest. Also because they're independent contractors. You know, you can't unionize. You can't compare it to soccer, mm. basketball, or other stuff. It's, it's completely a different, uh, you know, it's comparing apple and oranges. What if the players, you know, you go, go find a billionaire. I'm going to employ all of you players. I'll be your employer. Now you can unionize, and then I'm going to go negotiate with the tournaments. What, what, what do you well, think of that model? By the way, I, I don't think they need to find a billionaire. I, I think they can also decide now if they want to go into a model of being employed. But being employed also means that you pull all your rights. It means that Novak, Roger, Rafa will have to pull their apparel sponsorship into, into the pool. The same way that the jersey of the basketball team deal with Nike goes to the NBA, not, not to players directly. So it's a completely different model, eh? and I, I don't think they ever brought that up, but whether you do it with the ATP externally is something that we can think of. I mean, the tournament certainly, I think they would welcome a model where there are clear rules. And, and because, you know, when you also have an employee, by the way, what is the player need to understand? If, if your employer tells you that you need to get on the bus at 2 o'clock, train at 4, and play on Tuesday, you got to do that. <laughs> so yeah. there is pros and cons of being independent, independent contractor. You cannot really demand best of both worlds. You have to decide. It's freedom versus security. Uh, yeah, but that, that's definitely a model that can be discussed. It doesn't have to be done elsewhere. Right? When we, we talk about uh, – I want to go back to monetization because when, when we talk about data, at least in the U.S., that's often a code for – sports gambling for sports wagering where where are you with that and what complications does the lower level match fixing have on your relationship with data yeah just for clarity when i was referring to data first i was referring to fans data right. so the ability to know who our fans are to improve the crm the customer relationship management tools that we don't have in place and we should have in place but if you refer to the scoring data, which uh, we feed to the betting operator, it's, look, uh, I think it's a very important way to monitor the volumes of the match. I think the industry has legalized over the years. You know, we only deal with licensed operators that pay taxes and all the data is fed in a central system. And if there are strange activities, you know, it gets flag to the ITIA, which is the former TIU, the Tennis Integrity Unity. Mm -hmm. So that system, I think, is pretty, in my opinion, bulletproof. I do strongly believe that there is very little integrity issue in the sport of tennis. I definitely at the high level. 
we do we have some issues at the lower level we might and that's definitely the risky part i agree with you so which is something i think the itf is addressing at the at the future level but i think at the atp tour level we're, we're in a pretty good position because the guys are really playing to win they're playing to win they're playing for points they're playing to to progress in the ranking and to become champions it's not really a model to sell matches and right. and and go nowhere your, uh, I, I want to ask you about sort of tennis pr- professionalization and uh, professionalizing the operation. Um, I mean, sort of, I want to go back to this this idea of McKenzie looking at tennis, and you just wonder what they would say about some of the the fairly obvious conflicts of interest, or you know, I mean, let's c- c- candidly, your your predecessor was uh, pushed out in part by a board member who was facing felony charges. That doesn't happen at a publicly traded company. That doesn't happen at a, at a college and university. Do you think this is a problem? And, and what can tennis do, if so? What can tennis do to I, – I, it's, it's crass, but what can tennis do to sort of professionalize the operation? Yeah, look, guys, in parallel to the, my strategic plan, I proposed a governance review for the ATP, obviously, which tackles three elements. Conflict of interest, one. Two, term limits. And three – adding independent directors, which is the concept of bringing people high level externally with a lot of experience that are not too closely linked to the members, that they think, you know, out of the box for the greater good of the sport long term. Conflict of interest for me is a no-brainer. Look, once you sit on the board of the ATP on any board, you have fiduciary duties toward that entities, and you have to protect the collective interest of the stakeholder, not your personal not anybody else's that that's what you have to do and and as well term limits in a way it's 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 providing a healthy a healthy uh, change you know because if after two or three terms you haven't added value or provided you know i think it's 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 similar to the to what we do we see often in politics and, and other things so that i think can help a lot grow the credibility of the ATP and tennis in general outside, because I do agree with you. If we don't tackle those issues, we're not going to be credible. Those issues are stuff that, you know, the corporate world out there is doing these these many, many years, and we should be doing. So I table that discussion, and and it will be motioned at some point, and it will be voted. So again, time will tell. Let's see what happens. I have a very important question for you. I see that Dan Evans just won the first set from Novak. Can can he hang on? Um, no, I, that was. Well, well, go, well, go ahead, Dan. No, I, I was kidding, but go ahead and answer. Uh, you look like oh, you're ready to uh, speak. Actually, I saw him playing with Yannick yesterday. That was a great match. Uh, I felt he was in a in a pretty good shape. So I don't know. I, I haven't seen today's match. Honestly, no, I'm kidding. Um, I, I want to go back. I want to go back to what you said with possible merger because I, I think that's you know if, if this podcast were going to have a news break that would be it but I also think this is a really fundamental issue to tennis I, I think this whole issue of equal prize money is sort of uh, it, it's a red herring in, in the grand scheme of things it's pennies on the dollar but I think it's got to be decided before people go forward I think that's it's it's a threshold fundamental issue but keep, keep talking about what this merge tour looks like because I think we, we all agree one plus one is three is something that's been said for decades, but we're, we're not there yet. What needs to happen? And then keep talking about your vision for this merged product. Yeah. Uh, 
I think, first of all, you know, I've seen in my strategic vision, it's in two phases. First is ATP only, strategic planning, governance review, because I do believe you have to clean, you have to get your own house in order before you go outside and, and you propose merger or, or wider collaboration. But that's important because we need to, to lead the way. Secondly, there's, there's two elements there, which we obviously are discussing with the T7 group, a group uh, for, of ATP, WTA, ITF, and the four, clan, four Grand Slams. It's, it's, I don't think it's only about WTA, WTA and ATP. It's, it's about all of us, because really, you, you can't really leave the Grand Slam out of the equation if our goal is enriching the experience of the fans. They are the four biggest tournaments. They will always be. We want to keep it that way. And, and they're very big businesses. And at the moment, we do not have any synergies in terms of how we operate. Then, obviously, there is the easy wins. What are the easiest wins? It's probably low-hanging fruits is on the commercial side, marketing, social media, media and data rights between the TTP and WTA. That, that, that's what it can be done right away. But if I really would rewrite the rule from a blank sheet of paper, as you said before, I would definitely add the Grand Slams in the equation. But keep, keep talking about this merged product. I mean, essentially, you would then have men and women that would approach the Grand Slams as a, as a united whole. I mean, how, I, I, mean I, guess, I guess my point is sort of, let, let's drill down on this product because it seems to me tennis's great virtue is the fact that we have these interchangeable tours. And nobody says, I love Serena, but who's that Spanish guy with the bandana who's left-handed? Everybody knows these players. Everybody watches these matches more or less interchangeably. That is a huge virtue. That's a huge asset. To, to use your word, how do we monetize that? What does this look like? Well, we need to streamline our operation. We, at the moment, we go to market, the seven of us, completely separately, independently, without any coordination. We, you know, to a certain extent, we weren't, even ATP media wasn't selling all the 250s. You know, everybody sort of believe, okay, I can do better on my own. Obviously, on your own, you have 100% control. But as we said, aggregation, you know, provides value. And, and the value is not only in the monetization, by the way, eh? because I think one of the massive major goals we have is, is reach a wider audience and enrich the fan experience. So imagine... There are many different ways to do it. There's many, you can design a number of different structures how this would work. But in essence, you're basically coordinating, you have the same product, whether we, the, the main three revenue streams of tennis are ticketing, sponsorship, and media. Now, I think ticketing, like in other sports like Formula One and, and MotoGP, or to a certain extent, even basketball and NFL, they, they can be dealt locally, right? You don't want to centralize ticketing. That's dealt locally by the event you probably want to leave certain pieces of media and sponsorship locally as well, you know, domestic rights or, uh, or local sponsorship. And you want to centralize, you know, the big package of sponsorship and media, which, by the way, in the future, they are closely connected because brands nowadays don't want just a 25% of backdrop and, and put a logo in the backdrop of a tennis court. They want it integrated with content. They want it in the media. So it's, it's, it's a 360 experience also for our customers because in a way we are B2C 
because we focus on the fans, but we're also B2B because we are sponsors and broadcasters. So you you have the ability to go to an Amazon, a Netflix, an Apple, a tennis channel and say, hey, this is tennis now. We've got it all. We've got the fans data. We've got our platform. I mean, at the moment, if you're a tennis fan, you need to have five subscriptions to watch tennis, at least, you know, that's, that's the case in the UK. You need to browse through multiple websites, different apps. You probably need to register to 15 different services and, and all of that. These are pain points for the fans. And every time, that's what I learned in the last 15 years, you create a pain point, you lose customers, you lose engagement. People move away. Because nowadays, there are options, let's be honest. And the options are pretty good. When you switch on that Fire TV, Apple TV of that screen, there is a lot of alternatives. And we not only compete with sport, let's be honest. We compete with Netflix, we compete with music, we compete with gaming. We compete with the time and attention of people. So either you're capable of providing a very smooth, rich experience in a very easy way with a simple funnel to our customer, whether it's on-site or remote, or, or we are going to struggle. The sport is going to struggle. And our competitors are lean, they're moving fast, they're investing, so it's going to get tough in the future, but we, we are very, very well positioned to take advantage of that opportunity. But it's, as you say, we, we need to change the way we operate. We need to change our structure. We've come a long way since the days when tennis's competitor was golf. Um, so, so let me ask you. Let me ask you one more question. I mean, what? Uh, I mean, it's it's easy for a player, right? You look at the rankings. It's it's completely objective. For you, what what does what does winning look like? For me personally, no. For for this for this tennis as you envision it, where if we're at this this pivotal hinge point and there's a lot of potential, but there's a lot of competition. What, what does victory, what does success look like to you? Victory, victory for me means getting a greater piece of the pie. And for pie, I don't mean only business, but audience. You know, at the moment, yes, we have a very large audience. We under-monetize. But what I want, ultimately, is the goal, is more people to engage with tennis, to watch tennis, to enjoy tennis, to play tennis. Because I think we have a great product, by the way. I think it's great. And we can package it with short form, long form highlights. We need to tell more stories about the players, docu-series. You know, more than almost 50% of the touch points with the fans today in sport is actually Mm non-life. You know, social media is the new free to air. Mm -hmm. You want to know what is Novak doing behind the scene? How is Rafa training? What is Sasha eating? We need to be able to tell these stories. And, and to do that, we need the availability of the players and, and they need to trust that the tournaments are running the business properly with full transparency and the partnership can work. But the fans are hungry for our content on court and off court. And, we, and by the way, we've got great personalities. Uh, let's be honest, we've got great athletes. I mean, you know, our CEO, Massimo, is, he was the global head of, of Nike Tennis. Nike is a, is a pretty is a pretty serious uh, corporation, probably one of the best in the world in, in marketing and research. Four or five of their iconic athletes are tennis players. Eh? Mm-hmm. We're talking about you know we're talking about all sports. So Roger, Rafa, Novak, Serena, they're probably four out of the top ten athletes most recognized in the world. You know beyond many other sports. I mean I'm not saying we can beat soccer in Europe. 
soccer to a certain extent in some countries is religion. I'm not saying we're going to beat the NFL in the US, but I think we can be a solid number two, three, or four in every country globally. That's, that's the goal. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's another discussion too. Yeah, exactly. Um, we, we, we want to see that wedge of the pie chart uh, expand, is, is, what yeah. I hear, is what I hear you say. Um, this Everybody was... will have a happy smile on their face if we do. But it takes, it takes some pain. Change is uncomfortable. Change creates disruption, and to a certain extent, you know, it, it's difficult. It's difficult. Yeah. My, my main concern, John, getting this job is, because I, obviously I, my last experience was in music. Let me, let me give you another analogy with music. You remember when we bought CDs in the 90s, right? And, and then internet came, piracy came, Napster, the industry was wiped. You know, nobody was making any money. Then there was a guy called Steve Jobs that came up with an idea of iTunes and say, hey, give me your best song at 0.99. And the music industry was like, what? I'm selling you a CD for $15. Most of the time it's two, three songs. You now want to bring it to 0.99. And, and then came a Swedish guy called Daniel Ek, founder of Spotify, said, guys, we need it all in one place. The entire catalog at 9.99 a month. And the music industry, again, representing the artist was like, what? $9.99 for all the music? I think I spent over $5,000 in the 90s with my CD collection. And, and yes, the conviction is with the scale, we are bigger, you know, more people in the world access to these services and, and paying subscription, you are going to grow the revenues, which is now the digital revenue from music are way higher than they were. But my point is it took a big crisis to convince everyone for change. So my main concern is that the status quo is actually okay. That right. that doesn't really, you know, create a big motivation for change. Uh, you know, I'll tell you something else about Spotify, which is I, I think it's you know I, I forget the number. So you know, seventy five hundred downloads will get you the cost of one album. But you talk to the top artists, you talk to Labor, you talk to the Roger Fetters and the Rafa Nadal's. They're now happier in the Spotify model than they were selling CDs. So it doesn't just work for the industry; it works for labor, which, in in tennis especially, is an important uh, an important constituent. Um, this was great. I, we have an expression in the United States: if if you uh, if you think change is painful, wait till you try obsolescence. Wait till you try being irrelevant. So uh, I, I hope tennis embraces change because it it sure beats the option. It, it might be short term pain, but it. Uh, it, it beats the pain of irrelevance, and it sounds like uh, you, you, would, you would take that. Absolutely, John. You're absolutely right. This, uh, this was a pleasure. Go, go watch some tennis. But I was happy we were able to do this, and uh, maybe, we'll, we'll, maybe we'll do this on video for Tennis Channel next. But this was, uh, this was a pleasure. I appreciate this. Yeah, it was a fun chat. Thanks a lot for that, John. Anytime, and hope to see you. Somewhere on site soon, eh? And we'll, when we go back to normal, we'll, uh, we'll we'll see we'll see you in Paris, and we hope we'll see you in uh, October in Indian Wells. But uh, this was great. Thanks, <laughs> thanks so much. John, John, take care. Don't forget that pizzeria. Eh? <laughs> yeah, fifty-fifty. I trust you. Very good. Take John, care. Okay, thanks. Thanks to Andrea Godenzi, our guest. Thanks to Jamie. Thanks to the folks at uh, ATP tour for brokering this and setting up the technology. Uh, one day we will all get off Zoom and actually converse face-to-face. But uh, for now, thanks to uh, thanks to our guest. Interesting conversation. 
Um, I do think this whole business of men's and women's tennis merging is is so obvious. It's painful that it hasn't been executed. And if the hangup is really paying a few thousand dollars to even out prize money, uh, we are really losing the forest for the trees. So let's let's all hope that happens for the good of the sport. Um, okay, we will have another guest next week. We will have results. We may actually talk about some uh, some tennis on the court. Uh, again, I think both of us were glancing at this Novak Djokovic score during this conversation. For the record, he lost to Dan Evans. It's one of the bigger upsets of 2021, and uh, we will not have an undefeated season in men's tennis, we can now say with, with certainty. Okay, that does it for uh, for this week. We'll have another guest next week. Keep the guest suggestions coming. Subscribe, leave a review, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, see you soon. Take care.